and welcome back to Trash and Treasury with Grace and Miranda. This is a podcast where we talk about some trashy things, maybe TV, but we also talk about informative stuff. Things that you probably should know about, but at this point, you're kind of too afraid to ask. And so for our informative topic today, we're going to be talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so obviously she has passed away recently and she's been in the news a lot, but if you don't realize why everyone um, is so worried about what her death means and why she's such a legend, we're going to break it down and talk all about her life today. Yeah, we are. And yeah, the notorious RGB. What a exactly. legend. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll also be talking about another legend um, and her name is Moira Rose. And <laughs> <laughs> in the form of Shit's Creek, the TV show available on Netflix, I can't wait to talk about it. Grace and I have specially poured a glass of fruit wine for ourselves <laughs> tonight. And a Moira Rosé. A Moira Rosé. And in the words of Moira, mm, this wine tastes terrible. Pour <laughs> me another glass. <laughs> but as always, let's get into Treasury. Ginsburg, affectionately nicknamed the Notorious RBG, as you mentioned in the intro, <laughs> was a Supreme Court justice who's recently passed away, and everyone is worried what the vacancy will mean for the Supreme Court. So Ruth was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1993 by Bill Clinton. So she served nearly 30 years on the court, mm. and she is a legend, and much like something we're going to talk about in Trash... She only really got recognition very late in her life. Like she only has become an icon very recently. And there's two great movies that I watched, which I learned a lot about Ruth from, which I'll talk more about when we get to the recommendations. So one was a documentary called RBG and one is a drama based on her real life, which is called On the Basis of Sex. Yeah. So... Using both of these films, I want to tell you about her life. Do you know much about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? You know what? I didn't. And I feel terrible that I didn't because I feel like the name Ruth Bader Ginsburg is something that's a name I should have known. Like it's a name that rings a lot of bells for me. It's a, it's a name that people talk about a lot, but it's kind of one of those things where I was like, oh, I don't really know who that is. I don't really know what she means but I know that Mm. she's important but I didn't um invest enough time in making myself understand why so and now I feel terrible you know because it's like you know when someone dies you know that's their legacy but it's also like the only time that people lean in and take note and it kind of Mm. makes me feel horrible however the fact that she's had a documentary um she's a supreme court justice for 30 years she's been talked about forever and she's had a movie made about her means that just because I didn't know about her that a lot of people (laughs) so you know I've learned a lot about her recently but you know I've clearly missed the boat on why she was so important and, you know, how much impact she's had on America. Yeah, I didn't know much about her either until I saw the film On the Basis of Sex a couple of years ago. Um, Mm. I saw it in the cinema as a fundraiser. I kind of knew the Notorious RBG nickname. Um, But, yeah, I I knew she was a judge, but I didn't really know much about her either, especially... um, about her early life and how she did change, like, the world uh, for American women. So mm. she went to Harvard Law School, much like Elle Woods, uh, in the 50s. <laughs> did she really? Yes. Wow. She I was can't believe they one... even had women in Harvard in the 50s. Exactly. So she was one of only nine women and 500 <gasps> men. Whoa. And... This really happened. This is in the movie and the doco and it really happened. The dean invited her and the other eight women to dinner at his house. And everyone's like, oh, that's so lovely. He's welcoming the women. He asked each of them to stand up and explain, and I quote, what were they doing taking a seat that could have been occupied by a man? What the hell? I mean, that is a 
horrific thing to ask at a dinner party, even in the 50s. But like the fact that they've got there, they've got to Harvard, they're at, the, you know, they're yeah, exactly. qualified, they're at a dinner party with the dean or with their, whoever this guy was. And then he's like, hmm, okay, these are women who, you know, clearly have earned their stripes, but why are you taking a position from a man? Exactly. And um, so she's sort of like at law school against the odds, but she's still doing really well. Now, not only this, but her and her husband also had a two-year-old and her husband's also a law student. And then her husband um, got cancer while they were students and he turns out to be okay. He lived into old age with her, but he has cancer while they're at uni and so she was caring for her two-year-old and looking after her husband and doing both of their uni assignments Jesus. and doing all of his reading. Um, and she would work until like 3 or 4 a.m. And she oh just kept doing this actually her whole life. So even in her 70s as a judge, her family talk about in the doco that she still would like work all night till 4 a.m. And then just sleep all weekend. Wow. So she's like some kind of weird cyborg superhuman lady. I like that she still had boundaries to sleep on the weekend, like at least. And also there's this really cute scene in the doco. She's in her 70s or 80s in this Mm. scene. And she's like working out um, with a personal trainer and with her dumbbells. And she's doing like full push-ups in like her matching tracksuit. (laughs) <laughs> and everyone's like what the hell like we can't even get down to the ground let alone yes. do like 20 push-ups but she's just like amazing but anyway back to law school for a second yeah so despite how much other stuff she's juggling she still makes the honor roll for the harvard review which only the very top students get into so it's a big deal but yet law firms still don't want to hire her because she's a woman mm-hmm. and you know they don't hire women So instead, she starts working at Columbia University as a lecturer in uh, sort of lecturing in gender and the law. And it was the 60s by this point. Yeah. And the American Civil Liberties Union had just won some big, uh, big law cases sort of tackling racial bias. And Ruth kind of made it her goal that, okay, she wants to do this now for gender. Um, She wants to tackle gender discrimination. So mm-hmm. she starts, like, trying to take on any cases about sex discrimination. So the first case she takes on is this Air Force pilot who's a woman and realises all her male colleagues are getting a housing allowance and she wasn't, even though she's doing the exact same job and she thinks it's an error. But when she goes to get the error corrected, they're like, no, like, women just aren't entitled to it. And that was actually the law, was that women just weren't entitled to the housing allowance. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg Mm. takes on her case and she basically wants to use this case to set a precedent to get rid of all the other gender-based discrimination and to get the justices to be like, yes, this is wrong, and to review all the other gender discrimination law because that's what they'd been able to do with recent racial discrimination laws. Right. So they're asking for two things in this case. One, they wanted that pilot to get her housing allowance and they wanted to do a review of all the sex discrimination laws. They partly won um, and the pilot got her pay, but they wouldn't do the review because they needed five justices to vote for it and they only got four. Right. And so what's happening in the film and what happened in real life is that these sex discrimination rulings keep finding in favour of sex discrimination because of precedence and, you know, Mm. because 300 years ago they were like, yeah, women's work is worthless. And then the next judge is like, well, the precedent set by this and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to be like, time's changed. It's the 60s. We've got all these civil rights now. Like the precedence needs to change. And so what actually ends up happening is very fascinating and very strategic. So what she actually did next was she brought forward a case of gender discrimination against a man. So it was a case of a man who was the primary carer of his son after his wife died in labour, but the government payment for carers assumed that only women would be doing caring work and it only let women get carer's allowance and so he was not getting paid anything. 
And she yeah. takes this case to the all-male justices and says, you know, this man's a hero. He's looking after his son. He's not getting any payment because he's a man, you know. He should not be discriminated against on the basis of sex. Yeah. And she won. And that's how they got it overturned. What's interesting about that, because I didn't know that, but that is so interesting because I thought, like, obviously on the basis of sex and probably what a lot of people who haven't seen the film would have thought is, you know, because she's fighting for the equal rights of women and maybe one of her groundbreaking cases would have been to get equal rights of women. But actually... That's what she was trying to do, but nobody cared about that. But nobody cared, yeah. So her way in was to actually fight for the equal rights of men, being that because in this you know, backward mentality of, you know, the fact that a man couldn't be a carer. Obviously, that is still a very valid issue. Um, And she was trying to demonstrate the breadth of gender discrimination that it can affect men as well. But really, she was also trying to get the all-male judges to sympathise with the plaintiff in a way that they hadn't been for any of her other cases. How interesting. And so that's when she was still a judge, before she was a Supreme Court justice? Is that right? No, this is when she was a lawyer. Oh, she's a lawyer. Okay. This was back in the 70s when she was a lawyer. Right. Um, so she didn't become a judge until, yeah, much later. She didn't get, um, not until 20 years later was she on the Supreme Court. And so Ruth, as a Supreme Court justice, went on to influence a lot of court decisions. Um, Bush was elected not long after that and she was became a sort of more left-leaning member of the court in the Clinton presidency she was kind of center but then just the makeup of the court changed so much that she more and more started dissenting um and Mm. when she started dissenting this was when she started to become like really popular and when the RBG thing started to take off um because basically if you dissent, as in you disagree from what the other justices mm. are saying, you get yes, to write like your own speech of why they're wrong. And hers were like always hilarious. Really? Um, yeah. So there was one where they they have issues in America, like we talked about in our candidates episode, with voter turnout and different groups not having as much access to polling booths. And there was a law in place to prevent racial discrimination in voting and making sure there was like equal access to voting. And the Supreme Court decided to get rid of that law because they're like, nah, this is not an issue. And it's like, it's not an issue because there's a law making you sure you can't do it. Why would you get rid of the law? Yeah. And in Ruth's dissenting remarks, she said, The vote that's been made today is like throwing away your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. (laughs) Which is like (laughs) so true and so funny. And like, so that's when the memes kind of started. Isn't there also just on that, there was a case where, um, and as Supreme Court justices in America, they have this thing where they say um, if they disagree, and um, what they have to say is and what's protocol is kind of like or just a, you know, unwritten rule. But it's, you know, respectful to say, I respectfully dissent. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously for one particular case where she felt so strongly, she, you know, she disagreed with the court and everything. Um, and usually they would say, I respectfully dissent. And she mm. said, I dissent. And she didn't say respectfully. And I know that that seems really minor, but, (laughs) you know, in the context of the legal, you know, realm, that was a huge f*** you. It was a huge f*** you. And it was kind of like she does not respectfully anything. You know, she's just kind of like this is so completely unfair and I don't agree and even though usually it would be respectful she obviously really strongly felt that it was an unfair decision and that people were being biased and so she was just like no I dissent yes the landmark case with the male as the defendant was the big one that then were they able to change everything because they were able to say you can't discriminate on the basis of sex and she goes and wins all these other civil rights cases And in the 90s, the President Bill Clinton invites her to join the Supreme Court. And 
her confirmation hearing speech is actually really beautiful mm-hmm. and she like they have footage of her reading it in the 90s which sort of plays throughout the doco and in her speech she talks about her whole life and you know what she stands for and she talks about you know the importance of abortion rights that's something that people are really worried um is at risk without Ruth on the bench um because the woman who Trump has nominated has sort of got um very pro-life stances and there's also just like a very very strong conservative majority at the moment on the court and yeah a lot of people are definitely worried about that it's just in the trump presidency three supreme court justices have died and he's appointed two and he's now appointing a third but luckily hopefully the election is so close that if trump doesn't win that this person will not be appointed but that will give the supreme court a six three conservative swing and um what people are talking about and what's a really interesting and ethical conversation, I think, and I think it's more just like a, you know, not which way, you know, us personally are leaning or what anyone actually thinks, but just what is fair and what's, you know, what is the law supposed to do? And the law is supposed to be impartial and uphold the constitution. And in America, you know, there's lots of different Mm -hmm. laws to what we have in Australia. So it's quite different and we don't understand the full extent of that. But the point is that if you're a Supreme Court justice, your job is to uphold the law. And what people are criticizing Trump's appointment of is that she is so outwardly conservative, outwardly projects as a judge she believes that life begins at conception and mm. she is uh to be fair she has said she would not let her personal beliefs uh interfere with her that's what everybody has law. to say that's what everybody has to say and to be fair yes that is actually her job and she she is you know um she is somebody who has earned her stripes yes um and has conservative leanings um and you know, these Supreme Court justices having a conservative leaning should theoretically not affect the outcomes. But as we know, it does, you know, and to have a 6-3 conservative leaning in a Supreme Court upholding precedence, and she would be, if she's appointed, the youngest Supreme Court justice to ever be appointed in the American Supreme Court. And if you're a Supreme Court justice, you're a Supreme Court justice for life. So she would be on the bench for, you know, Possibly so you, you can years. retire. Um, you can retire, but you don't have to. Ruth Bader Ginsburg never exactly. retired. Mm-hmm. And so actually, this is also addressed in the doco, a lot of people wanted Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire in 2015 mm. because they wanted Obama to be able to pick her replacement. <clears throat> but that was back in the day when we all thought there was no way Trump could ever get elected. So everyone was like, it'll be fine. It'll be Hillary picking the replacements. And yeah. she sort of said, you know, I'll serve for as long as I can be serving to the, f- you know, full of my ability. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people were hoping she'd just hold on for one more year. So sad that, um, as I've heard people say, that, you know, it seems like the fate of America is resting on this tiny woman's shoulders. And it's just like, it's not and it shouldn't be. And her legacy is still her legacy. And no matter what happens next, she was awesome. And, like, she did amazing things and she held her position as a Supreme Court justice well. But I think everyone is gasping for what's going to happen next and we're just Mm. crossing our fingers that, you know, her dying wish that a new Supreme Court justice wasn't elected before the election is upheld. Mm. There's still some question marks So, yeah, watch and see for that, but... In the meantime, definitely watch the Docker movie about her because, yeah, she's incredible and inspiring. And, yeah, that's Ruth. The notorious IGB. <laughs> well, on that note, let's talk about something completely different and get into some trash. Mucho Diaz, Miss Hemi. now if you don't know what i'm referring to 
um, that's ridiculous because this is my Moira Rose impression. And this is a segment of Shit's Creek. That's right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Especially now look, you're ridiculous. Your you're first ridiculous. thing was a bit cockney. I was like, where is this going? <laughs> a bit cockney. Look, Moira is a bit cockney sometimes. Sometimes she I'm has a very a uh, hard to pin down accent. Yeah. That's kind of the whole thing. No one can it's work true. out what it is. But it's very specific and it stays very consistent throughout all six seasons. <laughs> It does. And I don't like, I mean, I do know how because I've looked into this extensively, especially with the making of Shit's Creek, the doco, also on Netflix, which um, everybody listening should watch immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, if you haven't seen Shit's Creek, um, spoilers isn't really a thing because it is a sitcom. It's a sitcom yeah. just in the same way if we were talking about Frasier, Seinfeld, Friends. You know, um, there's some plot, yes, the storyline, but the storylines go for so long that, um, you know, it's more just about what happens in every episode and the hilarious quotes um, and things like that. So Shit's Creek basically is a show that, for me specifically, I saw on Netflix and thought, this looks dumb. This mm. looks like, this looks like Joe Dirt. <laughs> Yeah, and we talked about that when you recommended it, that we both were like, eh. What is this? Like, I'm not really super into it. I don't know. I don't know what it's all about. Anyway, but it it has got critical acclaim recently. Um, it has swept the Emmys. Mm. Um, it has got nine Emmy Awards and it um, in the first time ever that this has happened, it has won all seven categories of comedy, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure. Is that right, guys? Yeah, that's correct, um, yeah. So including Best Lead Actor, Best Lead Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress. Um, there's also They've also won awards for costume, for possibly direction. I, I, don't, I can't best even remember show, all the awards. Best, yeah. best show, Basically best everything. everything. Um, and what's hilarious, sad, but also interesting about it is that they got all of their accolades after it finished. So mm. there are six seasons of Shit's Creek. It basically made no splash for a very long time. And it was only when it came to Netflix that everyone jumped on board and started watching this show. But in niche circles who did know about the show early on, um, you know, Moira Rose, who is the mother in Shit's Creek, um, became an icon quite quickly um, but it was in a very niche sort of you had to know about it to mm. watch it. And actually what's interesting about it is it's a Canadian show, but it's set in America. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so let's go back a little bit. It's a show created by Dan Levy, um, who is Eugene Levy's son. And Eugene Levy is also in it um, as the dad. And also, it's a little bit of a family affair. Sarah Levy, their sister, is also in it as the townsperson called Twyla. Um, there is also another close friend of the Levy family called Catherine O'Hara, who plays Eugene Levy's wife, Moira Rose. Um, and the show is essentially about a family. So Moira and John Rose. Johnny. Who, Johnny Rose. Johnny. Johnny Rose. Um, who basically go bankrupt um, and they've got, because they're, you know, tax agent embezzled a whole bunch of money or, you know, some random thing like that. They don't go into it because it's not important. It all happens in the first five minutes. And um, <laughs> they're two children who are adults, like in their early 30s. Um, yeah, it's kind of ambiguous <laughs> their ages for a while. And you're it's, like, what are you guys doing here? It is ambiguous. And I remember describing this to someone and they're like, oh, so their kids are with them. And I was like, yeah, but they're like adults. (laughs) But they're rich rich kid adults who have lived off inheritance their whole lives and they don't know like what to do without money. And um, so the story goes that they lose all their money um, and the only thing that the repossession people didn't take was this town called Shit's Creek because it is worth nothing. And um, they get to this town. It's exactly what you would expect. And they are in this town for like all all six seasons. And um, they live in a motel because that's the only place that they can kind of go at the time. And... It's just and years pass. Is it is the show set pass. in six years or is it about four years? Definitely years are passing. 
I think that, you know, Christmas episodes come and go, but it doesn't matter. It's more that they made seasons and they just made it hilarious the whole time. It is quite a plot point because there's a Christmas episode and you've never seen one before. And in the Christmas episode, they say, okay, kids, like we didn't do anything the last two Christmases because we were so depressed. We're in Shit's Creek, but like, we love Christmas True that. this year. We've got to do it. And I'm like, wait, it's been three years. I thought they've been here for like two months because it is a sitcom. Like it's just it's about sitcom. the antics of the quirky townsfolk. And it's just about the townsfolk. It's just to about ask, you know, fit in 100%. this town. Yeah, but it's quite groundbreaking. It is extraordinarily funny. The characters in this show, I mean, my favourite character, I know this is very controversial because it is a close, you know, it's a close Mm. race because everyone's amazing, but Dan Levy, who plays David, is actually my favourite character. And then to find out that he was the show creator was like a big deal for me. not controversial I agree with you that I think Dan Levy and him uh, Catherine O'Hara are the stars of the show and I was actually really surprised that Dan Levy was only nominated for best supporting actress and that Eugene Levy was nominated for best lead actor because Eugene Levy's character is just kind of a plain straw man trope just reacting to the antics of his family like he doesn't do that much but I guess they nominated him based on like his gravitas and his name and I think that that's it too because it made zero sense to me that he mm. would get he's a supporting lead actor. actor. He's a supporting actor. Day David and Alexis, who's played by um, Annie Murphy, who is also basically an unknown actress, but she's absolutely phenomenal as essentially the hot girl and the dumb girl. Like that's kind Alexis of her... is still supporting though. Moira is the lead. Moira and David are the leads. Look, they all have quite an equal split of airtime, but. I do think that the younger characters, the children, do have like pretty much, I feel like they kind of lead the show. I feel like Moira and John um, are the supporting actors, but their gravitas and their big names, I mean, I guess it just landed in, landed them in that category. And the only way to sweep the Emmys is to put someone in every category. Because yeah, realistically, realistically, you can only have one lead actor and one lead actress And it's just so interesting because it is a show that's been a slow burn um, and it's been, you know, it started out with a bit of question marks, what's it about and what's what's going on in the town and, you know, it's just a silly show. But actually it's got a lot of heart and some of the lines are just phenomenal. Mm. But it's actually been recognised quite widely for some different reasons. Yeah, and I think slow burn is a really good way to describe it. Yes. And they sort of talk in the doco about how when the show did start bringing in more heartfelt um, and serious themes that they felt really well earned because it had sort of really slowly built up to it um, as a comedy yes. show and it didn't feel like it was just like a preachy show. It's really interesting the nuance and the character development that you do actually get. But I think if I was to just pop it on and watch an episode here or there, I wouldn't necessarily understand that's the so meaning true. and the gravitas of the relationships and Moira and her development and I don't know it's just when you watch it in sequence and you watch it close together you really understand the beauty of what they created mm. some bits of it the comedy is not quite to my taste I really hate the little meerkat hands they do and like that mm, mm, mm. like they do that so much <laughs> Alexis, yeah. I Alexis, love it. but David holds his hands in Mia Cat pose as well a lot. And Alexis. It's like their go to <laughs> resting position. <laughs> like, I don't like physical comedy. Um, so I was like, what I is this? Get but it, it slowly built up like it grew on me and Catherine O'Hara's um yeah, her physical comedy is genius. One of my favorite things with her was um when she went and did the blockbuster movie, The Crows Have Eyes 3, The Crowening. Oh, <laughs> so the Crowening. <laughs> the baby Her crows. Squawking and stuff like she is a genius. <laughs> what did she say? How she was like, the crows on set treated me as one of their own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's just got some amazing quotes. But I think that um, what I didn't like about it in the beginning, I was kind of like, oh, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit stereotype or it's a bit silly or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the, even the meerkat hands grow on me as well. And it's I just true. think so much of the comedy is ironic and it's true. trope and tropey and a satire of stereotypes, but also leaning into them because it's hilarious. But they do subvert stereotypes too, as in, yes, there's a camp sort of character, but he's never, ever labelled as gay. And um, it's very, very interesting because he, they, they do talk about in, I think, season one that he's a pansexual. So basically he meets mm. this girl, Stevie, who uh, runs the motel that they're living in they eventually become best friends. But in the beginning, they actually start sleeping together. And you think, oh, this camp gay guy is sleeping with a woman. Um, In my head, that was my bias that I was thinking, oh, but isn't he gay? You know, Mm. and, but I thought that was really interesting because I was actually kind of living for him and Stevie for a short time. And then when that, yeah, I was, I really was. But then it changed. When him and Stevie are sort of discussing this, there's this really good scene where they're in a bottle shop. And she's like, so do you like red wine or do you like white wine? And he's like, I like all wines. She's like, okay, yeah, you just like wines. And he's like, look, I'm into the wine and not the label. Yes. And it's become this like huge like slogan and mantra. It has. And I think that that was so good and it was so what he set up to do in that first season. I know that they do talk about pansexuality once, um, but the show is actually known for and beloved by many, you know, non-binary, um, all different sexualities for being so open and non-labeling. Yeah. Um, and it's- pansexuality, I suppose, inherently is non-labeling, but it's still a label. And I know that some people I've spoken to about the show have criticized for criticized them for using even that label but oh really yes but I but I and I and I can see where they're coming from in the sense that you know basically the whole show didn't have labels he's Um, not into the label didn't you hear what he said in the bottle shop I did hear what he said in the bottle (laughs) shop but straight (laughs) after that Eugene Levy straight after that Eugene Levy was talking to um Roland who's the town gross guy um (laughs) which I'll just as a side note he if anyone wants to know he was in scary movie too as the one who was like um stuffing the chicken it's just oh god he's disgusting and he's just as as disgusting in Shit's Creek he's also Lily Aldrin's dad in How I Met Your Mother who invents all those <gasps> he is. Games. Oh my God, yeah. he is too. Yes, mm. yes. So he's a well-known, disgusting guy. That's basically what he plays. And, you know, so they've, they've, but what they have done and what they've done so beautifully is create a world, um, especially in a small town where there is no homophobia. And they even have a, uh, another man in the town who used to date a woman who then starts dating David. Um, he was previously engaged to that woman. He then also, you know, him and Stevie date the same guy because that guy is bisexual or, again, not labelled, but dates both men and women and in between and just will Mm. date whatever and and isn't into monogamy. And um, It's interesting because I remember you said this in your reco. You said, you know, Dan Levy has created this world where homophobia doesn't exist. And I remember at the time, like, having never seen the show, being like, that's really weird. That's really weird. Why wouldn't you instead want to combat homophobia and address it? But they sort of discuss this a lot in the doco about the making of Schitt's Creek, where they're saying, like, it's a bigger paradigm shift to just show a world where they don't have to, like, overcome this big thing. And it's not, like, unrealistic. Like, the actors say it's just what life could be like. And they're not also saying that homophobia doesn't exist in society. Like, it's hinted at in backstories and stuff, but it's just that it's not displayed by these people in this town, even though they're kind of rednecks in the middle of nowhere. That's exactly right. And that's that's what's so cool about it. There are a lot of shows that show homophobia and combating homophobia but this was a different example and something that was really different and what people have said as well is that when the two main um David's main love interest Patrick and David get together 
it is like so validating and such a win because they didn't have to overcome all this hardship to get there they just could have this beautiful love story and David is kind of quite like closed off and not really open you know to things um but Patrick is just so beautiful and Definitely my favourite moment of the whole show, and I'm sure everyone's favourite moment, is when Patrick hosts an open mic night. Yes. And he's like, you know, it's tradition that the host would sing a song, and David's like, how embarrassing. Like, why would you sing a song? But then he starts singing, and he says, I want to dedicate this song to David Rose. And he starts singing this beautiful acoustic song, and it's a cover of Tina Turner's Simply the Best. But it's like a gorgeous, beautiful acoustic cover, and everyone's acting in that scene is masterful Patrick's acting singing the song and just staring at David's eyes and David's reaction and also Moira looking on you know and her son being serenaded oh it gives me chills I got chills actually watching it I melt I rewatched it and um look shout out to Candace because this is her most hated scene um why you know look she just doesn't like sap and fair no Candace is not going to ruin this for us uh everyone else loves that so Candace is not going to ruin this for us. Yeah, I know. Um, and that scene is so beautiful. And I, I also love the intersection of heart and comedy. So even in yes. that even in that scene, how he's like, he says, um, so you're going to be singing like at the mic night, you know? And then he's like, do you have... Um, do you have a problem with that or whatever? And David's like, well, no. I mean, if you're willing to put our relationship at risk like that, I mean, sure. (laughs) And he just laughed and, you know, Patrick's just so beautiful. He's like, whatever, you'll love it, David. And then he gets there to the open mic night and he's like, I want to dedicate this song to a very special person. And then David's like, okay, cool. I can, you know, relax into this. And he goes, David Rose. And then David's like, oh God, you know. (laughs) But because that was a funny setup, it just felt like, it was such a surprise, but it was also so perfect. And the show isn't sappy. Like, yeah. I did not expect him to be so good. Did you I expect know. him to be so good? I, he was such a brilliant singer. I was like, I want to listen to this cover all the time. And it's also, on Spotify. Oh, oh my God, of course it is. Well, I need to listen to it. I listen to it all the time. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I need to listen to it all the time as well. I call you when I need you, my heart's on fire. You come to me wild and wild You come to me and give me everything I need Oh, and David's little face and his eyes and he's just looking and smirking and it's just beautiful. It's so nice to see a relationship with two men um, that is actually fleshed out in a sitcom that's quite sweet and, and again, not ridiculous it's just like a normal relationship and it's, it's still also a not like so tragic because there's a big trope with lgbtq relationships in tv shows where they always yes. make one of them die this is a thing google is this there? now that you know about this you'll start to notice it um oh. so for example in buffy with tara and willow in skins with naomi and emily there's just heaps and heaps of examples where they do this and so, like, having just a beautiful night. Seems like nice, a weird trope to have. Like, it's why? It's super weird. Um, and everyone's like, stop doing this. But for that oh, reason as okay. well, like, everyone's saying about Shit's Creek, it's such a gift. That they didn't kill one of the... the <laughs> well, that is just a beautiful story without hardship. I feel like that is, like, should not be a reason, but... Fair enough. I mean, I guess if that's Google a trope, that, that's a thing. Yeah. What the hell? I've like, oh god, that's horrible. Mm. Oh well, you know, on on uh, one of David's other relationships, there was a hilarious moment, um, which is one of my favorite Moira quotes, um, where he is sleeping with this guy Jake, who is also the one who dates Stevie, and. Um, He's in the room and Moira comes in or something and David's just acting in this sort of awkward, really, he's just such an awkward guy and I love him for it. And he goes back and forth and he's got his hands on his hips and he's sort of, you know, putting his head forward a bit and he's sort of like, what, what, what are you doing here? And what, what, you know, what are you doing here? You know, mom, like, could, could you not have, you know, announced yourself or something? And Moira just goes, David. 
stop acting like a disgruntled pelican. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's so true. It's so funny. Oh, she's, she is so funny. They all I are. don't know where they find these quotes, but it is just hilarious. And he was a disgruntled pelican. Like that is the perfect description of what he was doing in that moment which just says to me one amazing writing and two amazing acting like amazing utilization the, of the actors yeah because amazing utilization of the actors. and eugene levy have been sort of each other's muses for many years um they and have. All the they've been in lots of movies, movies together they're in together are hilarious um and a lot of people do say that's like why people watch the show to sort of See them it's true. Them. Yeah. <laughs> there was another Moira quote, which I have to say because it has no relevance, but um, it's just so Moira. And at one point, I think she was talking to David um, and she was like, what you did was impulsive, capricious and melodramatic, but it was also wrong. <laughs> 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 and like, these just these people are just so selfish. Like that is just the trope. But they've of course they've got some lovely moments, and that's and like the whole. And they become less shtick. selfish. They have a big character arc. That everyone has personal growth, they do. and the whole show ends with like everyone having their own different types of personal growth. But they're also just like, although they are selfish, and yes, there are some like many examples of that. They're also kind of surface level selfish. So they're they're kind of like you know they like their nice things, but they're actually really beautiful, wholehearted people. <laughs> They're so cute. So, yeah, it's just such or a Or, like, they can show. kind of be, like, really beautiful, but then they'll just kind of ruin it. Like, ruin Alexis it be is one again. example of that, where she's like, totally, take my clothes. I didn't, I don't need them. Actually, wait, I have no idea how that got in there. Um, You can't take I that. I want that back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, we haven't really talked about Alexis and Ted, and their big personal growth thing is, like, by the end of the show, you know, one of them's a vet and he's in the Galapagos Islands and she doesn't want to be, you know, there. She wants to be in America and go live her life. So they decide to like amicably break up. But also he's like, this job is forever. It's a three-year contract. And they're like, no. Like three years is not that insurmountable. No, it's really not. And clearly she's absolutely head over heels in love with Ted. She was engaged to him twice. He was then with somebody else and then she completely fell in love with him for real. And Mm. then he left his girlfriend and then they got together and they're still incredibly in love. And because he's in the Galapagos Islands with this cool job and then she's like finally found her independence and wants to be a publicist, she wants to go do her thing. But like... As if three years is a big deal. Also, just go visit. Like, I know that she likes her nice things, but just, you know, just a little bit of sacrifice. Like, just go and visit or have a long-distance relationship for a while. Like, get over it. So, yeah. I mean, but Alexis is hilarious. I I think there was a very sweet um, also intersection between you know, her dad's affection for her and her mum just, like, not caring about her at all. Yes, I know. (laughs) Alexis something rose. (laughs) And also my favourite one is, like, um, when they're saying, like, you picked up the wrong kid from daycare and she's like, Alexis looked Chinese when she was younger. Must I apologise forever? (laughs) (laughs) I've completely forgotten that quote. I've That's completely forgotten that quote. quote. From her. She looked Chinese when she was younger. Must I apologise forever? <laughs> <laughs> but oh. it is really such like a shame, but I think also nice that the show has become kind of iconic after it ended. It's kind of yeah. like books that become published after the author dies or something and they, you know, suddenly become huge. At least the show creators are still around to enjoy this amazing cultural phenomenon and so many people have like reached out to them about how much the show means to them. But yeah. both of us didn't watch it till after it wrapped, no. which was in April this year. I We've know. watched the whole thing since then. I know and just what a joy it was to have this in quarantine. <laughs> like just brought so much joy and if you haven't watched it if we haven't convinced you watch it for yourself because that's Mm. all you need to do to convince yourself that this is a wonderful show it is so funny Um, and stick with it for you know at least three seasons by then you won't you know by then you'll be hooked but yeah it's definitely the show we all need in 2020 if you were somebody who didn't watch Kath and Kim or um you know Summer Heights High 
you know, you'll understand how much you don't understand those quotes because all you've heard is other people quoting them around you. And Schitt's Mm. Creek will be one of those shows. And every quote from Moira, every quote from David, every quote from the show is going to become iconic and historic and you don't want to miss it. So jump on it. Totally. Yeah. And on that note, ew, David. (laughs) That's my Alexis impression. (laughs) Ew, David. There's actually an amazing um, video of um, Annie Murphy, who plays Alexis, doing Moira Rose's um, wine impression. And um, I think that's the perfect way to take this segment out, given that we both have a glass of wine right now. I'm going to Moira and lead us into hills with, hmm, fruit wine. Mm. <laughs> Bert Erflinger, Herb Merflinger. <laughs> My name is Moina Rose. <laughs> if you like the taste of crab apple, join us for Herb Flerkenderber. At a fog to Flerkenberger. Oh my god! I feel like I'm watching the show right now, and anyone that hasn't seen it will think you've just had a seizure. But everything's fine. It's hilarious. Trust us. Watch Shit's Creek. So I have kind of another old hill to die on this week. Not as old as Titanic, um, but this one's from 2014. Okay. So the hill I'm willing to die on this week is that the last ever episode of How I Met Your Mother that people say was the worst episode of TV of all time was actually fantastic. I totally agree with you. Right? And this is so controversial. It's so controversial. So I was hate looking it up it. while I was thinking about talking about this on the pod because we've just rewatched it and that's actually how in Schitt's Creek I knew that um, the mayor from Schitt's Creek is Lily's dad because I've just been watching it. And um, so when the ah. season finale aired, it was the 31st of March, 2014, and people thought it was an April Fool's joke because it came out a day before the 1st of April. Everyone was just like, no, no. I think people were telling themselves that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm glad you agree with me. Um, for those who can't remember or haven't seen it, Basically, there's this big twist at the very last episode um, where Ted actually gets with Robin and it turns out that the reason he's been telling his kids this long story for like nine years is because he was kind of telling his kids about all of, you know, this background with Robin and his kids say to him, you know, our mum's been dead for like years now. It's time for you to, you know, go be with Robin if you want Robin. Um, like, and that ending works so much better because otherwise it is super weird that you told your kids for eight years, how much you love your friend Robin and then randomly like met the mum in the last season. And look, I Mm -hmm. love the woman that made, that played the mum. And I know you do as well. Kristen Melotti, who. She um, was in once the best musical of all time. Yeah. And in How Much Your Mother, she plays LaVeon Rose on ukulele and she's like so charismatic and beautiful. But everyone was like, no, like you can't kill her off. Like she was the perfect woman. But I also just think she was Ted in a wig. She literally was. It was like a very teenage boy idea of the perfect woman that was like, she was exactly all of Ted's quirky personality traits with long hair. She loved word searches and puns and she had driving glasses and she was like a dork. That's true. It's kind of like if you wait long enough, you'll find the perfect woman. But then, you know, I think it was interesting because it was like, well, she wanted what he wanted in that time and they spent this beautiful a number of years together and then she died and then yeah I loved that it all ended up being the whole story was about Robin and having permission from his kids to move on I think it was different um, and I can understand why people didn't love it because they were like no like that kind of just feels like a cop-out but I didn't I thought it felt like a really interesting ending to and it was it was a very deliberate ending um they actually filmed that ending uh right after they filmed season two 
No. Yes, because they were worried the kids would look too old if they waited. And the kids look exactly the same the whole way through. They just used the same footage of the kids being like, Dad, really? That was all filmed back, you know, in the early 2000s. Really? Yeah. And so they knew that's what they wanted to do with it is blown Mm. that is amazing my mind is totally blown and yes I'm with you on this hill Grace I will die on this hill um I have said to many a person I loved the ending to How I Met Your Mother yes and almost but people everybody the worst episode of TV of all time it's hated yeah no absolutely not they're wrong we're right I agree um we will die on this hill great so yeah look my hill is a bit different um it's but also one if uh any of my friends are listening that they will know that this is something that I just really hate and even our listeners will know this from previous episodes that we've had okay (laughs) is that I really hate female lead characters who play on cutesiness yeah yeah so I mean this is showcased in many a show it's problematic um even in a show i absolutely adore buffy the vampire slayer sarah michelle geller super cutesy and annoying even in the bold type jane Mm. super annoying and cutesy i can't stand it um zoe deschanel in the new girl i'm not for it i just you know there are great things about shows that don't need to involve a cutesy lead it just irritates me so much what do you mean by a cutesy lead so what I mean by it is that they play on cutesy so they might have a storyline they might have other things that happen but basically they just kind of get where they want to go or they get advantage in the show or they just have these really cutesy personality traits that are just kind of quintessentially what you know women you know, are supposed to be. They're supposed to be these cute little things. And it just it mm. really irritates me. And I think that there are really strong, amazing, sexy lead women in shows who represent a much better portrayal of women that are still iconic and cool and sexy and cool. And yes, even other stereotypes might be problematic, but the cutesy one just really gets up my goat. And I was reminded of this hill very recently in The Bachelor. Mm. So if anyone's following The Bachelor, it's been a very odd season. Um, Lockie, who was in Survivor, who I, which I absolutely love Survivor. Um, Did he come from Survivor? <laughs> yeah, he, he oh was a contestant in Survivor and he was also in the All-Star season of Survivor as well. He didn't win any of them, but um, he was a, he was kind of like a... You know, he was a He's a perennial reality TV contestant. He's a perennial candidate, yes. Much like Vermin Supreme. And um Yeah. And so he's on this reality show. And to be honest, he was actually kind of all right. Like he was kind of the most human of a lot of the women. It sort of seemed like it was just all about catfighting and it was all about the women. Anyway. Mm. But the point being that despite you know this season being extraordinarily extraordinarily problematic as all seasons of the bachelor are the most annoying thing i found was that one of the lead women called bella um was just you know all he talked about was her big brown eyes oh she, no <laughs> yes and how she was just, she was like bell like her name was bella and he called her Bells, and like she was literally Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Like she was just this kind of cutesy little, um, yeah. Like she looked like a Disney character, and she was just so cutesy and annoying. And I've I've seen and heard a lot of content about Bella being like, oh, editing, you know. And um, Bella was uh, interestingly edited as like. A Disney princess wifey and then she was uh construed as kind of a villain um for a time mm. and then at the end she was rejected and kind of had this iconic line of um is that the end can I go now which was kind of funny but um, <laughs> I have to say that you know I, I'm ashamed that I'm so invested 
but her cutesiness and her irritation her playing on cutesy this whole time in the show her big eyes and I felt Mm. like she just constantly was making eyes at Lockie and all they were doing was just like making eyes at each other and it was just so surface and so boring and to see her get rejected at the end was so awesome like I just loved (sighs) it I know, and I know that makes me a horrible person, but I really don't like it. The cutesiness factor just irked me so much. I think it irked Australia. I think, yeah, I just, it, I really hate it. I hate it in TV shows. I hate it in reality shows. I hate it in life. I just, please, the trope is over. Stop doing it. Stop using a baby voice and stop using your mm. eyes to project that you are like some wholesome baby Mary Poppins <laughs> person. I just, I hate Look, it Look, so some much. people might be like that, but I think your point is like, but why are we writing so many scripts? Oh my God, maybe, nobody's like know. that, Grace. Who's like that? Nobody's like that. Zoe <laughs> from Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. She was accidentally cute and she was beautiful. <laughs> exactly. So she, she didn't like cutesy on... as long as it's an accident. She didn't play on her doe eyes. She was just adorable. She did doe eyes sometimes. Oh, yes, but she was hilarious and awesome as well. Like, no, she was nuanced. She was good. That's true. She was nuanced. (laughs) Anyway, that's my hill to die on this week. That is your hill this week, but I also feel like that is your hill uh, every week because we have (laughs) heard you talk about these things in many different segments of the podcast. But I'm glad we had some time to really unpack it and focus on it. And look, as we talked about in Treasury earlier, There is a woman who definitely did not feel the need to play into cutesy stereotypes and I promised that I would come back and talk a bit more about some things to watch about her and recommendations. So let's go hear some non-cutesy recommendations. So as promised in our Treasury segment, today I'm going to be recommending two shows you can watch about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They're both on Binge, um, which is quite a good little platform, actually, I must say. It also mm-hmm. has Sex in the City. It has Big Little Lies, has The Nanny. It has a lot going Ooh. on. Um, and you can have a one-week free trial to watch your Ruth Bader Ginsburg content. One is a drama film called On the Basis of Sex, and it's basically um, – about how when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a young lawyer, she, you know, led the way um, to get sex discrimination sort of overturned. And, you know, it also talks about like her life. It's kind of basically legally blonde, but instead of everyone being like, oh my God, you're so blonde and you're from California, they're like, how come you're a woman? (laughs) (laughs) And it's called On the Basis of Sex. And then the other thing you should also check out on Binge is a doco that came out maybe a year or two ago called RGB, which also um, is really awesome. Lots of interesting um, interviews. And yeah, this one's actually a doco as opposed to a dramatic film and heaps of people rave about it. And now's the time to go. How timely that that came out before she died. Like, yeah. I guess she was getting older and, you know, That's she right. was unwell. And so I suppose people, uh, yeah, I guess they would have thought we probably need to honour her life soon and mm. her legacy, you know, so she can um, appreciate that before she dies, you know. And, yeah, um, very true. See, yeah, see a doco on her. That's awesome. What about you? <laughs> well, my first one is just riding on the Shit's Creek wave, which is, uh, yeah, uh, much well. less kind of. <laughs> It's still great. We're all about balance. I've got the treasury recommendation. You've got the trash. It's trash and treasury. Yeah, balance. Hashtag balance. Um, so this is uh one that you actually recommended to me, Grace, and it is the TikTok of a man called Michael Justin Berry. His TikTok is M Judson Berry, and he does the best Moira Rose impression. It is unbelievably uncanny and hilarious. And he does um, an array of videos. So sometimes they're legit Moira impressions. So, for instance, when she says, when there's this one scene in Shit's Creek where she's like, just fold the cheese, fold it in, fold just it fold in. it. I literally What's don't folding know what it in? 
<laughs> and other times it's um just he has these whole quarantine videos and he calls them quarantine time quarantine time <laughs> <laughs> it's just phenomenal i i'm a good impressionist and I I will toot my own horn because this is something that I'm good at I'm good at impressions I can do impressions pretty well I've got nothing on this guy and his Moira Rose impression is almost better than Moira Rose's actual person (laughs) like it is just that iconic and fantastic and he's doing quarantine time and just random stuff and it is absolute heaven so if you're just you're wanting more more Moira Rose and Schitt's Creek is now finished look at his TikTok. It is something to be admired. Yes, that is fantastic. Um, My second reco is a funny one as well. Mm-hmm. It is the Australian season of Drunk History. Oh, interesting. I've never ha- seen, I've never heard Drunk History. Oh, Drunk History is great. So the premise is like it's a, podcast, a comedian. Right? No, no, it's a show. Oh, no, it's definitely a show. And the sh- um, that's crucial to the plot. So what Drunk History is, is a comedian um, drinks a lot of alcohol and tells a story from history. And they're like, and then this guy said this. And then oh, they were like rambling. And then <laughs> they get other comedians to act it out in costumes using the original comedian's dialogue. And it's really hilarious because they'll usually swap the genders or just have some way that it's just really hilarious. Like the other actors then lip sync to the drunk person. Oh, cool. It's actually very cool. Um, And the first episode of the Australian one, I will specifically recommend Anne Edmonds little skit on it because it is hilarious. Oh my God. It is so, so good. You can watch this. I think it's on 10 catch up. Um, there's about six awesome. episodes with all different Australian comedians and definitely, definitely you have to watch the first episode, which has Anne Edmonds. It was, yeah, laugh out loud, awesome, hilarious. Oh, she's amazing. Oh, I don't know how you got roped into that one, Grace, but I am thankful because, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Um, my my next one is a bit different, um, but you might remember my first hill to die on, uh, which was that we had you know some terrible experiences with bad films. Oh yes, um, in quarantine, and I was looking for a thriller, and I just couldn't find my thriller. And then I found a good thriller, and it's Ooh. really good. And I need to emphasize how good it is um, and how much if you are somebody like me who I know this is terrible and really really like you know um, just bad for like the fact that we don't want to watch other languages television Mm. but it's a subtitled thriller um, and it's Norwegian and it Mm -hmm. is phenomenal but you were literally so gripped. And this is like my new thing. I've actually got into Nordic thrillers because um, the fact that you are so gripped by the content and by the story means you are watching those subtitles mm. intently. It also means there are less subtitles. So you can still there's like... there's eerie music. Eerie music. Screaming. <laughs> things that you can follow. Um, you know, it's different if you're watching like a political thriller where there's lots of dialogue and things you yeah, need to understand. You know, it's a very, very different experience. So this one that I watched in particular is called The Wave. And I think it's on um, SBS On Demand and mm-hmm. it is phenomenal. It is a, basically about a tidal wave that happened. Um, but due to um, something that actually did happen in history, and not for what you would think. So it's not like a continental sort of shift as they usually happen. Mm. It was based um, on this fjord, and which is like all these mountains and this beautiful lake. And, mm. oh, God, some of that movie is just the scenery because it is stunning. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a thriller so far. It sounds like oh, just a drama. Or stunning. Stunning, stunning, stunning. Great acting as well. Um, And it's basically about a rock slide that happened with these kind of canyons sort of, these really, really old canyons sort of um, compressing or something or contracting. Um, And then a rock slide happens. And it, it, because of the way that this 
beautiful picturesque land is and people are living there which I at first could not understand but because it's so beautiful it makes sense that people are living there Um, and you just take a risk because it could happen once every 1,000 years it could happen once every 100 years um, where rocks fall into this lake this fjord and that causes a massive congestion of water to then go through the canyon and through and up and over the mountains, creating this ginormous tidal wave. And the so movie's it goes called over the mountain because I was going to say, can't you just build your house higher up the mountain? But no. Nah. Well, they have safe zones to get up to if mm. there's the bells that ring and stuff like that. But yeah, like this is basically. That sounds What's awesome. Cool? What's this amazing is not about what I it? Thought you were talking about no, when you said but it sounds so really good. Cool. I'm like living for this, Grace. Like I can't even. And it's a Norwegian thriller, and like nobody can get on board this with me because nobody's it's like watched it. It's a nature it. action thriller. <laughs> it's a nature action thriller, but it is a proper. I think thriller. this sounds good. You need to watch it. It's obviously about a tidal wave and this guy who just he's like a hero, and it's amazing. But it's actually based on real events, and this thing that they base the movie on really could really effing happen. Like this could really happen and it has happened in history and it could happen again. And it is just like, but when? Because it could be in a hundred years, it could be, oh, it just, it, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Like it's just so brilliant. I can't wait to watch it again with somebody new who hasn't seen it because it'll be like I watched it for the first time. <laughs> I'll watch that with you, maybe over Zoom or something. That actually sounds really fascinating. And speaking of Nordic thrillers, brr, it's cold in here. There must be some Toros in the atmosphere. I said, I said oh, brr. Oh. <laughs> ice, ice, ice. Here we go. <laughs> so look, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what we're talking about. It's Bring It On and it's just had its 20-year anniversary. So next week on the podcast, we're going to be re-watching and talking about all things Bring It On. We are and I can't wait. It has been something that we haven't watched for a while. You know, we need another chill-eating thriller. Um, not chill-eating thriller. <laughs> <laughs> it is a thriller though. There's plot twists, like there's villains. Plot twists, there's rivalry amazing so yeah like can't wait to talk about that what I will say based on your hill don't you think Torrance is a little bit cutesy I do I do I do and it's a little bit problematic but I'll still forgive her because you know Missy um, Missy is the real star of the show Mm. obviously she's yeah she's the real Toro but we'll save that for next week Yes, and um, we'll also be talking about some interesting psychological experiments and, you know, what happened before ethics, during ethics, Mm. and after ethics. It's a pretty wild ride. So, yeah, there's some that you might have heard of and some that you might not have. Yeah, super interesting and fascinating what was okay, but, you know, the amazing breakthroughs that we got because of dubious ethics. It's totally fascinating. So, yeah. Can't wait to talk about that and we'll see you next week. Please note that the views expressed within this podcast are our own and we are not experts. We have done some serious Googling and even some serious internet deep dives, but we are by no means qualified. If you need actual advice, please speak to a licensed professional. We can even help you Google one. 